to be in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians as we begin a new series within Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 1, as Paul writes, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both to their Lord and ours. Grace to you, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we come now before you, having worshipped you in spirit and truth, praying that your Holy Spirit, Father, continues to move in this place, in the fellowship, in the unity, and, Father, in the instruction of your word. And so, Father, let us now bow before you, our Lord and King, and before your word, so that we may be obedient to it in every aspect of our life, as Paul will address in his letter to the Corinthians. And so, Father, we're thankful that we have your word, convicts us of our sin and unrighteousness, that is living and active, full of spirit and life, encouraging, directing, leading. And so, Father, as we live in this world, may we always be about living in it by way of your word and leading of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As I mentioned, we're starting our series. Go ahead and be seated. You know, since I became the pastor here in November of 2021, I began to preach series out of various epistles. And the first one was, if you remember, First and Second Peter, where the theme of those epistles was the facing of persecution in a world that was hostile to us as a result of believing upon Jesus Christ and that we would suffer persecution. And how do we deal with that? How do we address that as believers in Christ? Then we moved on to James. And within James, we, the theme there was spiritual maturity and where we need to continue to grow in our spiritual maturity and that we'll never really obtain it until the day of Christ Jesus but that spiritual maturity is a very important characteristic of a believer in Christ so that we're not enticed by false teaching, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, not being deceived, especially in the world in which we live today that is very deceptive in all manners. But now we're in 1 Corinthians, and we're faced with a different challenge. And this challenge is not necessarily attacked by way of persecution, by way of the world, which is hostile to the gospel, or trials and tribulations that we face that mature our faith. The challenge we face that Paul's going to be addressing in 1 Corinthians is the challenge of living a holy life in an ungodly culture. A holy life in an ungodly culture. And keeping the culture of this world from compromising the church 
and compromising your faith in Jesus Christ. So this morning I want to provide a short kind of introduction into 1 Corinthians because when you understand the letter of Corinthians, when you understand the various elements that we're going to go into, you're going to understand why Paul is writing the way he's writing. Sometimes we read epistles without context and we don't understand what he's really saying. Well, we're going to lay the groundwork of that this morning so that you understand exactly why he's addressing what he's studying. And whenever you study Scripture, when you're at home and you're studying Scripture, you should always study it from various virtues of such as history, culture, who's the audience, who's the writer, and the various other elements of proper biblical interpretation. And we're going to focus on the history and the culture and the major influences that were affecting the church at the time in Corinth. And you know, when, you're gonna, when, you, when you listen to me describe Corinth, you're going to say, that sounds familiar. It's because it is. So before we begin, i, I, I got to address culture, okay? Culture plays a huge role in influencing society and influencing the church. It always has and it always will. Every generation since the first church established faced cultural influences. With some withstanding them, but others compromising under the weight and influence. And we see that all through Scripture. We're seeing it here with Corinthians. Now, what is culture? Culture is the traditions, the morality, the teachings, the entertainment the skill set, the literature of a given society that influences it. And we can describe our culture in this world very easily, and I think we'll nail it as we go through understanding the culture of the Church of Corinth. And as far as Christ's church, and I've heard this term before, the church needs to be culturally relevant. What does that mean? What does that mean? I don't really care for that term, but it was really pitched hard in the 90s. we got to reach our culture. And as a result, the church changed a lot of its dynamics. In fact, there's a buddy of mine that was a pastor of a church, one of the original pastors of a, of a new church plant, and their church didn't have a cross anywhere in their building. And I asked why. Because we're trying to reach those that have been over-denominationalized. We're trying to be relevant. They were trying to be a seeker church. I'm not going to... The cross is the centrality of the Christian message. It should be the focal point of every church. And so I, I, I understand what they're saying by being culturally relevant, and I'll get to that in a second. But we're not to be culturally relevant in a world in which exists. And what I mean by that is we're not to compromise our foundational doctrinal principles and truths that define us biblically in order to be relevant to a culture, in order to attract it. I've said this many a times, and you guys know this. This is doctrine. This doesn't change. This is methodology. This can never compromise that. You can change your liturgical order of service. 
You could change the music that you do. You could change the decor of your building. You could change whatever model you want to do as long as you don't compromise doctrine. You can then go out and try to attract certain people. But we also have to be on guard with that too. Because when you bring a person into a church and there's no cross, then what are you really saying there? That's just me. That's just me. And so we're not to be culturally relevant in the relationship to doctrinal truth. We're to be counter-cultural in the world in which we live, especially now, where the church used to have influence on a community. It doesn't anymore. When I grew up as a kid, Wednesday night, nothing was scheduled because that was catechism night for various churches and church activities. Now, they have hockey tournaments on Sunday. And I confess to you, as a hockey parent, I took off a Sunday to go take my daughter to a hockey game. And so we don't have the influence like we used to in the communities in which we live. And so what we're going to do then is that we see here in Paul's letter that we're called out of the culture. And we're called to influence it one heart at a time in preaching Christ and Him crucified. And so as we explore the first letter of the Corinthians, you'll see how much culture played a role in the comprehense and the compromise that was happening in the church and affecting its spiritual vitality. And it was also affecting its unity. It was also affecting its maturity. And it was also affecting its standing within the community. For here in this church, we desire to know Christ and to make Him known through unity, maturity, and community. And all three were being compromised within the church of Corinth. So let's begin by looking at Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. And the story actually begins in, in Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through 7. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. As I turn there, I'll read for you. I read out of the ESV if you haven't already noticed. Acts chapter... 18. I'm not going to read all 17 verses. I'm just going to read a few here. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a, new, uh, found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, he, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for them as tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they uh, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, You blood, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to a house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. How convenient. Um, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And thus we see the birth of the church in Corinth. Now, here we see several things. First, we see that Paul meets fellow Jews by the name of Aquila and Priscilla, because, and they worked in the same trade together while Paul reasoned in the synagogue. 
And so Paul did not go there, as you'll see later in the culture of the Corinth, to be a pontificator or a rhetorical orator. He came to work, and then he became, went to the synagogue to reason with them. Now, planning a church was not Paul's first aim. Paul was going to the synagogue to try to convince the Jews that Jesus was truly the Christ until they rejected his message. And so Paul both ministered to Jews and Greeks and to that man named Titus Justus. Now, no relation to the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. He wasn't writing to this Titus. He was writing to a different Titus. And here is where they came together to form a house church around A.D. 50. And after 18 months of laying the foundation for the church, Paul left for Antioch. And within three years, Paul wrote his first letter to the church in Corinth. And we know that there's a missing letter as referenced in chapter 5, verse 9, which we'll get to, where he addressed sexual immorality that was already existing in the church. It was a young church. It was a new church. And it had problems. And Paul heard shortly after he left that there was a problem that he had to address in the letter. And so he sent him the first letter, which we call the missing letter. Now, obviously, this letter failed to correct the behavior that was being reported. And now Paul writes a second letter. And in this letter, it's kind of divided into two segments. One is, he was addressing the problems that were reported to him by Chloe. And the second part was answering questions that they had in relationship to this new faith that they had living in a corrupt cultural world. Same kind of questions that we all ask when we're first saved. Okay, what what, does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? How should I do this and how should I do that? And so Paul answers those questions in chapters 7 through 15. Now, the first Corinthians was written around A.D. 53 to A.D. 54, just a few short years after he established the church. And I understand a new church, right? Um, When you establish a new church and people come into the church, you know, church planners will talk about this, right? It, It can be a mess because people are brand new, saved, coming in, and they're bringing in all of that habit. They're bringing in the culture. They're bringing in who they were, and it gets a little messy. But he left a very solid foundational leadership team there, and yet in three years, he's already writing a letter to correct behaviors that are being reported. And it is a letter that addresses issues, but it's also a theological letter, and we'll learn that as we go through this letter. But now in, order to, to, in order to fully understand what's going on here, we've got to look at those elements of interpretation. So let's look at the first one, which is historical. Oh, wait. There we go. Let's look at historical. Okay, City of Corinth had a long history. Been around for a long time. Initially, it was a city in Greece until they revolted against Roman rule, and the Romans came in. You know, anytime you revolt against Rome, what do they do? They destroy everything you got, right? And so they came in, they destroyed the city, and it left abandoned for about 102 years until 44 B.C. when Julius Caesar, before he died, established it as a new Roman colony. And it was kind of almost kind of what of a reward for his Roman centurions that served him faithfully along with freed men. It was the first time that a colony had ever been established where freed men could go in to these colonies and establish it and build their own businesses and build their own lives. And due to its location, 
we see right there, Corinth, right above Achaia, there, it, was, it was about four to five miles between the two ports that you see there. The two, and it, they actually have a canal there now, but it was a city with two ports that made it extremely valuable. And they would rather go through Corinth than actually take their ships and roll them across that five miles or so instead of sailing through the bottom of Achaia, which could be very treacherous, the currents, the winds, everything, a lot of shipwrecks. And so the Corinth was set up to be a very profitable city by virtue of its location. And it produced, and it had a lot of natural resources. In fact, one of the first resources that they needed in order to have a successful colony, city, or whatever, is water, fresh water. And the Pyrenees Fountains provided as much as they needed. Also, they had clay for bricks, sandstone for construction, marble for roads, making and two ports, making Corinth a very strategic location for trade and defense. Now, as far as ethnicity, Corinth was made up of Romans, obviously, but there were Greeks there as well, and a lot of them, for that was Greece. There was Jews, and a lot of immigrants came to Corinth when it was established in 44 BC, just like a lot of people came to Williston during the oil boom. Minot and surrounding communities, Watford City. And it was a melting pot, but it was very much Rome. It was very much Roman. It was designed and built by Rome. Architecture and influences organized by Roman government, and it was governed by Rome. In fact, many of the outlying Greeks condemned those Greeks that lived in Corinth for vacating their heritage in favor of being Roman citizens of Corinth. And the city remained in this location until about 1858 until a 6.5 mega... Um, Magnitude earthquake destroyed it. And now the modern city of Corinth is actually built a few miles away, and it's about 30 to 35,000 people. Culturally, and this is the most important aspect of, of Corinth as we understand it as we go forward in the epistle, it was very diverse, had a lot of influences defining its culture. It was administrative capital of the region, and it, had, it was basically a melting pot, like I said. But it was a very immoral city. And that was due to several influences. And the first one is its wealth. This was the first opportunity for anybody to go to Corinthian and be an entrepreneurial individual and have aspirations to build a business and make money, and they did that. Due to its ports, its trades, and also the Isthmian Games, Isthmian Games, if I'm saying that right, which happened every two years, which was a big event. A lot of people came in. And all of its natural resources and entertainment, Corinthian became very wealthy within the Roman Empire. And the desire for wealth was ingrained in the culture. When Paul arrived in Corinth, it was teeming with commerce, with many of its inhabitants becoming very wealthy. Wealth was very much tied to their social status. And there was a great divide between wealth and poverty. And this made Corinth very materialistic, where your standing was based upon what you owed, what you owned, and how much property. In fact, there were some people that uh, created their own monuments and put their name on it, like donated by Bob. You know, that's, I built that. That's me. 
Secondly, Corinthian was driven by success and prestige, producing very high, egocentric, individualistic, competitive society. You've seen it in the church. You'll see it in the church where people wanted to have influence, wanted to have their own following, their own subgroup, and it destroyed the unity of the church. It was also a church of self-sufficiency or a culture of self-sufficiency lifestyle that desired local autonomy and held freedom a paramount right, and they explored that freedom in every way to their own destruction. They were proud of their Roman identity and citizenship and held it in high regard in identifying who they were. They also prided themselves on worldly wisdom, the pursuit of knowledge which gave rise to what is called rhetoric, which is a form of oratory where they use persuasive speech to influence others, with many times coming at the expense of truth, which is kind of interesting. Fueled by human wisdom and philosophy, many admired those who could command an audience and speak eloquently and convincingly and gain a following, all for praise. But it compromised truth. didn't matter if what you were saying was true. It mattered if you were being followed by what you were saying. Truth became relative and secondary to what was being heard and promoted. Now, this cultural influence seems benign, right? Oh, Tim, why are you bringing that up? Well, it's going to show itself in the letter that Paul writes and the accusations that were coming against Paul for not being a very good rhetorical person. It was also the home of the Isthmian Games. Like I said, they happen every two years. So entertainment was a huge element of the Corinthian church, just like any other society that has a lot of wealth. What do you do with it? you got to entertain yourself. Well, the Corinthians did just that. They were also very idolatrous people, followed many false gods. In one temple, there is tributes to Abraham, yes, to Abraham of the Bible, Orpheus, Greek god, Apollonius, Greek god, and Jesus. They didn't want to leave him out, so they included him. Now, this was after Paul's ministry, obviously. They didn't know who Jesus was when Paul came. And, they, and their, their attitude about idolatry was the more gods that you have, the better off you'd be. You cover all your bases, right? And they frowned upon those who had a singular God. And that's why Christians were thought of as odd. You guys only believe in one God? Really? The more gods you had, the more social status you had. Now, when you take all these cultural norms into account, you see formidable influences that were coming against the church or coming into the church. In fact, we'll see this. The culture of Corinth was intertwined within the culture of the church, and it was compromising who they were in Christ and who they were in the world. It was also an extremely immoral city. They, every city in Greece usually has a patron god, and the patron god of Corinth was Venus. And the temple of Venus employed over a thousand beautiful women for prostitution. In fact, what they would do is they would go and find prostitutes in other worlds, bring them back to the temple, and then as people would come in for trade, they would invite them to go to the temple, and after two days they would lose all of their money. 
And so people would say it is not for everyone to go to Corinth. Or if you wanted to describe somebody who was immoral, you'd just say you call them a Corinth. That's how immoral that city was. And yet God wants to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the immoral place of Corinth. And he sends Paul. Now when we look at all these influences of culture coming against the church, does it seem a little familiar? Do we not also see the same influences of our own culture pressing against the church today? Are we not wealthy nation where the almighty dollar is very much pursued and worked towards? Are we not a society driven by success and prestige where titles mean more than character and success more than integrity? Are we not a nation of self-sufficiency and rugged individualism who prides themselves on freedom? Are we not a nation who prides ourselves on earthly wisdom and knowledge? at times at the expense of truth? Are we not also an adulterous nation where we have replaced God with a great many things? When I look at Corinth, I see a very similar culture in the U.S. And in Europe, all you have to do is a tour of Europe and you know what happened to the church there. They're insignificant. All of the churches are now museums. It's very much a post-Christian environment, and we're following suit. And we need to understand that culture has a dramatic effect on the church and our own lives. And this is why we're in 1 Corinthians. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and we were discussing a certain topic that was highly debated within the evangelical church today as it relates to women in ministry. And a friend of mine told me that a mid-level leader of a denomination, he wasn't the president of the denomination, but he was just underneath the president of the denomination. And when he asked him and pressed him on why he changed his attitude towards women in ministry, allowing women to be pastors and be ordained as reverends, he said, culture. It wasn't the exegesis of Scripture. It was culture. He admitted to that. That shocked me. And this same man, this pastor friend of mine that was telling me this story, he said, this is how I always approach people when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Where is that found in the Bible? I like that. Simple, but powerful. You see, everything we believe should be grounded in Scripture, not culture. And yet we see culture have a dramatic effect on the church. And this is why I've chosen to go into 1 Corinthians at this time. Now the theme here, when you look at 1 Corinthians, we see several major themes, but the one that kept coming into my mind, given the dichotomy of living for Christ and yet being influenced by the world that can affect that life in Christ. And as I prayed about what the theme, Lord, what's the theme the Lord provided me this theme right here, that we are called to a holy character in an unholy culture. And character is made up of the mind and the spirit of a person and how they carry themselves in Christ. 
So with this theme in mind, let's briefly look at that greeting that Paul gave to the church because if you look at it and just say, what a great greeting that was. But Paul basically sets the foundation of everything he's going to be talking about just within the greeting. So let's take a look at that. One through three, again, Paul called to the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ, called to be as saints. Now, I think in the NIV it says called to be holy, which I really like. With all those in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Right Within the greeting, it would assume that Paul is just providing a general greeting like he always does in most of his letters. And yet, he sets the tone. He lays the foundation of what he's going to be talking about. And he reminds the church as to who they are and their calling. So let's break that down. So he begins by writing to them and saying, to the church. To the church. Now, what does this phrase mean? It means that phrase means to be called out. To be called out. To be a called out people. A call out people from what? From the world. From sin. From unrighteousness. And so, as Paul was called by the will of God to be an apostle, we're called by the will of God to a life of holiness that reflects him. We did not come to God by way of a moral decision where he just woke up one day and says, you know, I think I'll give my life to the Christ. Or seeking our own. He called us. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We must never forget that we were chosen. That He chose us. That He revealed Himself to us. He wooed Himself. He wooed us unto Himself and then revealed Himself to us and ignited our faith to believe. And as a result, we believe in Him and responded to the words of faith that give us life in Christ. The reason this is important is because when we understand we are called and that it is not of our own doing, it's a divine call with a divine life and a divine purpose for which we are to live. And it is the greatest responsibility you will ever have in this life. Second Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election Sure. Next, he says that we are sanctified. Not only are we called out people, but we're separated unto Christ. Again, this is where the road to commitment begins in our Christian walk. That we must understand that we're not only saved from sin, but we're saved to Christ. And that saved to Christ is a sanctified life, a progressive sanctification towards the image and likeness of Christ over this life that he gives us on this earth. We're to be transformed 
into his image and his likeness. I know we use this verse a lot, but boy, is it a powerful verse. I appeal to you, brothers, in the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means you're sacrificing the culture, the world. You're sacrificing your own interests, your own desires that are not of God. And you're living a life for Him that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your life. Not just worship, your life. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right there we're being called out. Called out of the culture, called out of the world. We are to be of the world, but not, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. I almost misquoted that and you guys would have left confused. <laughs> by the testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's where the church was failing in Corinth. They almost did what they felt was right in their own mind. They defined it, not allowing the Word of God to define it. And we see that in the church today. This is where the church was failing in Corinth. They were not living a life of sacrifice, but a life conformed to the world in which they lived. They failed to renew their mind. They failed to be obedient to the Word of God. And as a result, they were not about the will of God. They were about their own will and their own desires. Therefore, they weren't even living for God, although they presumed to be. Thus, the letter was written to Paul. Paul, we got a problem in the church of Corinth. Because they were failing to see their error, Paul has to write a letter. Finally, Paul says that we're called to be holy, as the NIV would say. We're called to be saints. Because in the ESV it says saints. And this term describes one who is set apart for holiness. You were set apart for holiness, not worldliness. Holiness. Again, the church in Corinth and ours as well is called out from this world, out from our sinful nature, out from its influences that are morally corrupting to a life that is pure, a life of righteousness, a life of Christ. First Peter 15 through 16 says, but as... He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Paul, within the greeting, just in this small greeting of three verses, reminds the Corinthians as to who they are, who called them, what he called them out of, and how they're to live. And he sets the foundation that he's now going to go and address in this lengthy letter. Brothers and sisters, this was just a short introduction to our new series in 1 Corinthians. My hope in sharing what I have with you this morning begins to stir your hearts 
and your minds as to how we are to live this life in the world in which we live, the world of which we've been called out of, but we've been called to as well. And that we're not to allow the culture of this world as it relates to morality, we're not talking dress and appearance and the arts, but morality to not change who we are in Christ or compromise who we are in Christ. We're seeing it in the church of Corinth. We're giving these scriptures for a reason so that we're always reminded as to who we are, whom we follow, and what our calling is. And so I hope and pray that if you can't be with us next week, that you would certainly enjoy the sermons being posted online as we walk through our study of 1 Corinthians. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks and praise for your word, Lord, and we're excited about studying this specific epistle. Lord, as we read forward, we study, we read 1 Corinthians, Lord, I hope the cultural setting, the historical setting sets the foundation of understanding what was actually going on. But Father, we live in a world right now that the influence of culture is a very strong influence within the church, especially with the young people, Lord. And I just pray that as we read your word, we see the truth of your word. And that, Father, that we would write it upon our hearts, not interpret it to our own means, to our own desires, to our own will, but that, Father, we would interpret it as it's provided to us as truth. And so, Father, with that, I give you thanks, I give you praise. And as we, Father, join together in the fellowship hall where we are going to partake in a potluck, Lord, we pray your blessing to be upon the food. We pray your blessing to be upon the fellowship. And Father, we just pray your blessing to be upon our sister, uh, Father, for her day here. It would be one of celebration as Virginia gets ready to go to Arizona, Lord. And we're just so thankful that she's here. And we ask your blessing to be upon her in Jesus' name. Amen.